0: Our reading today is from Matthew 27 verses 27 to 50. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers round him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail King of the Jews they said. They spat on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall, but after tasting it, He refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lema sabachthani," which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good evening, Church. It's really good that we're able to gather here this evening to think specifically about the death of the Lord Jesus. We do think every Sunday we gather together about the death of the Lord Jesus and give thanks to God for it. But this evening, we wanna think and focus more specifically on those last moments of Jesus. So we're in Matthew chapter 27. If you've got a Bible nearby you, it's just been read for us. If you've got a Bible nearby you, it'd be great if you could have it. Also, if you keep your finger in Psalm number 22, we're gonna be having a look at that as well a bit later on in the talk. Why did I pray as we begin? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're able to spend some time thinking about the most significant event in all of history, the death of Jesus Christ, your son. Please help us understand why he died. Please help us to trust that. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. We all enjoy it, but not everyone recognises it. We all smile when we hear it and get a sense of satisfaction when we speak it. Its formal definition is the expression of one's meaning by using language that normally signifies the opposite, typically for humorous or emphatic effect. Normally, it's identified by the tone of the voice, the heavy pronunciation of the important words. Sometimes also, it's identified in the visual clues of the eyes, a wink, or the wry smile of the mouth. What am I talking about? Irony. Phrases like, don't go overboard with the gratitude when a thank you has been less than fulsome, or describing a situation like, a man who needs medical assistance run over by an ambulance, or a pilot who has a fear of heights. Sometimes we call it a joke with a jag, where in all appearances, you're cracking a joke, being funny, but actually below it, you're making quite a serious point. Often it's said, never a truer word is spoken in jest. Irony can be vicious, nasty, and bitter to hear, but sweet to deliver. It has advantages. It can clarify something that in some way may not have been clear beforehand. It can point out what's important, and it does so succinctly. Well, this chapter of Matthew's Gospel describes the final moments of Jesus' life. It gives detail about his death. It is the story of the crucifixion, in which we get the truth about Jesus, but in this case, from his enemies and executioners, not his friends. It isn't the apostles or the disciples or the Christians who are spelling out this truth. Rather, it is those who are killing him. And the thing is, each statement, each detail is full of irony. The irony here points out what is important. See, at this point, Jesus is now a threat to the ruling classes, both religious and secular, to their authority. They resent Jesus's popularity, for he threatens their power. Their stranglehold domination is being loosened, and Jesus is viewed as the revolutionary, which, of course, he wasn't in the way that they thought he was. In actual fact, Jesus's kingship, his rulership, was an even greater revolution. So they brought him to trial at a kangaroo court in order to execute him. He is presumed guilty from the very outset of his trial. The only outcome was death. So what do we read in this passage? What do we hear? Let's have a look. Verses 27 to 31, we hear that the man who is mocked as king is the king. Let's read it. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe in him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand and knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. These few words are peppered with irony, aren't they? Every detail Matthew notes has an ironic tone, don't they? It was fairly normal to scourge. It was part of the process of crucifixion, to weaken the body, to humiliate the psyche. The rather dark humour of those who are about to do the deed is well on show here. But this terrorising of Jesus goes a step even further. It's the worst kind of humour. The entire company of soldiers gathers for the show, passes the popcorn, makes themselves comfortable. Welcome to the mocking of Jesus. The humiliation begins by Jesus being stripped naked and then robed, not for warmth or comfort, but they find him a scarlet robe, scarlet being the colour of royalty. So you can see what they're doing here. Ha ha, they claim you're a king. Ha ha, let's dress you up like one. What else can we do? Well, a crown, of course. This sinister dressing-up box didn't have a ready-made crowd, so they found one. But this one was made from thorns. The barbs on thorn branches in the countryside around Jerusalem were long and sharp. This was a brutal, mocking makeshift crown, designed to draw blood. Then they give him a scepter, not one made from gold with diamonds covering it, but a stick of wood, the robe, the crown, the wooden scepter, each designed to mock Jesus and to claim that he is some kind of king. They even gave him homage, mockingly, sarcastically, ironically, calling him a king, not meaning a word of it, all a big joke to them. But in their irony, bedecked with the makeshift symbols of royalty, baying, hail the king, never a truer word was said. You see, Jesus was the king. He had blue blood coursing through his veins. His family tree, outlined at the start of Matthew's gospel, stretched back and included the great kings of the past, in fact, the greatest, David. Jesus was a king by right. He spoke as a king, rightfully and with authority. He was God's king, the king above all kings. In their ignorance and brutal irony, they were actually speaking the truth. The man who is mocked as king is the king. Secondly, <clears throat> the man who is powerless is powerful. Verses 32 to 40. Have a look. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. Crucifixion was the most brutal way to die. It was both an effective punishment, death always inevitable, and humiliation, always a welcome for them, byproduct, the most callous deterrent. The intense powerlessness present in crucifixion, the beating, the scourging, no physical strength even to walk to the place of punishment all designed to bring about death over the slowest, most humiliating way. The person to be crucified had to carry the crossbar to the upright stake in the ground, being nailed to both. Jesus was so physically awakened by all that he had met at the hands of the soldiers in his scourging that a man called Simon from Cyrene had to carry the crossbar for him. Crucifixion was death by asphyxiation gasping for breath under the weight of one's own body when strapped to this Roman gibbet. Hence the breaking of the legs for those who were close to death but not Jesus. Absolute futility, shame, terror, horror, unending pain in the lungs, gasping, grasping for the very last breath. The Romans had three forms of capital punishment. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals, the slave or the rebel, or even the treasonous. It looked like utter powerlessness. One of the accusations made against Jesus was his claim that he said he would destroy the temple. You see that in verse 40. Obviously, the thought of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was completely abhorrent to the Jew. It was the last remaining relic of the golden time, so to speak. So Jesus' words uttered against the temple, or so they thought, would have offended deeply an act of desecration. And it's cast up by those who are walking past. Yeah, a great claim, Jesus. Come on, where's your bravado now? You couldn't even lift so much as a trial. You couldn't even lift a pebble, Jesus. But what did this now parlous Jesus mean when he spoke of the temple? Well, he was speaking about his own body weakened under the weight of imminent death. But we knew that Jesus would not stay dead. Three days in the grave and he would be alive again. His body would be, so to speak, rebuilt. That's what Jesus meant. But they thought wrongly entirely. This king of the Jews, they sarcastically mock, would be alive again. The one who appears powerless is the one who gave them life and breath and everything else. He is the true and the living God who serves his people by suffering for them. The irony is this, his death, his powerless hanging there in slow death was his powerful way to resurrection. He could have with a thought and a word come down from the cross like that he had angels Legions of them who could have soared from heaven to save him. But this powerful Christ stayed on the cross in complete weakness. But powerful resurrection was coming. This was the one who raised Lazarus from the grave. Who calmed the storm. Who gathered the disciples. This powerful one dies in weakness. The man who is powerless is powerful. The man who can't save himself thirdly. Saves others. Verse 41 and 42. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Again, more ironic shouts from the crowd, this time from the leadership of Israel. But their ironic shouting, their insult-filled words betrayed a basic ignorance. Jesus can't save himself because he is saving others. His loss of life brings a life to others. His death means eternal life for others. Remember back to the beginning of the story of Jesus. One of the two names that the baby Jesus is to be given is that name, Jesus. The clue to those insulting him was in his name because it means to save his people from their sins. The fact of us hanging there tells us that we need some kind of salvation, some kind of rescue. You and I are in grave danger, lost, subject rightfully to God's judgment. You see, the reason for the rescue is because of our sin. Jesus doesn't save himself because the way for others to be saved is through his losing his life. If only they'd remembered these Jewish leaders what Isaiah had said about the one who would suffer. By his stripes we are healed, by his wounds we are forgiven. He was pierced for our transgressions. That was the way Jesus would save others, by him remaining on the cross. Their great irony betrayed an even greater ignorance. Jesus wasn't lacking in power to save himself. Rather simply, it wasn't his will to do it, to save himself. Of course, he could have, but that would have impressed and wowed the crowds, not saved them. So the man who can't save himself saves others. And finally, the man who cries out in despair trusts. God. Verses 43 to 50. He trusts in God, they said. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the robbers who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Seeing this sight, hearing these words of despair from Christ. Of course, you might think to yourself, well, we can't blame him, really, for speaking like this. Utter despair, as his life was in his last moments. You would too, wouldn't you? Of course, his words are breathless, burly, gasped, burly mouthed. Hence, we have the note in verse 47, he's calling Elijah. Jesus' words sounded something like Elijah, Eloi, Eloi. You can imagine that gasping word, Words by a man gasping for air, every breath breathless. The intense pressure on his chest to say anything, to get anything out. You can imagine, "Eloi, Eloi." The awfulness of this situation is seen in the mishearing of just exactly what Jesus had said. And more sarcasm from the crowd in saying that Elijah may come to save him. Ha ha ha! But what is Jesus saying? and what is going on. Has Jesus given up? Have the circumstances beaten him? Is his impending death too much for him and he's losing faith, so to speak? Has his mission gone wrong? Has he taken a wrong turn to end up on this cross? Well, to think that is to mishear what Jesus is saying. These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Are drawn from Psalm number 22 the first line of that psalm. There are contemporary readings of this psalm that are more to do with psychology than the Bible and theology. Christ is experiencing here abandonment whilst being perfect, what it feels like to become sin. All our sin transferred to Christ as he hung on the cross, Christ was banished from the presence of God. He endured the separation that you and I deserve. He endured the judgment that our sins deserve. He knew the curse of sin. He willingly took it on himself. He knew the agony of that judgment. You want to hear hell? Listen to these words of Jesus. But of course, Jesus knew the psalm that he was quoting, Psalm 22. If you take a read through it, you hear words like, all who see me, mock me, they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. And those are exact words. They wag their heads, quoted here in Matthew 27, verse 39. Look at it. And those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads. To show that this psalm is being played out in the death of Jesus. In verse 16 of the psalm, we read, they have pierced my hands and feet. And in verse 18, they divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Let me read verses 22 to 24 of Psalm 22. It goes like this. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. In other words, this psalm ends with a note of triumph. Jesus isn't curious, wondering how this is going to turn out. He had embedded in his soul both the horrors of the moment of abandonment and he had embedded also in his soul. and might think, God will not despise me. In the end, he will take me back. So he knows it is not a final cry or an ultimate cry. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, and the why is not a request for a theological answer from God. It is a real cry of spiritual desolation with words that were second nature because his whole life was scripted by God. You see, Jesus is cut off in his death so that you and I don't have to be. So the man who cries out in despair Trust God. So this is the cross, the death of Jesus for your sin, for every expression of your rebellion against God. Jesus took it when he hung there. Let's pray. Maybe you now want to say to God something like, I'm sorry. Please forgive me for my sin. Please forgive me for my turning away from you in my words, in my thoughts, in my actions, every bit of me. But thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying instead of me in my place for my sin. Please help me to live with you as my king until I meet you. In Jesus' name, amen.